It was a muggy night in August 1929. All of Harlem was asleep, except for Madame Queen Stephanie St. Clair. She was wide awake, plotting her revenge. Vicious gangster Dutch Schultz had taken hold of almost all other policy banks in Harlem, but St. Clair was determined to keep Schultz's dirty hands off her money and her neighborhood. She wanted him dead. But St. Clair didn't have the means to kill Schultz. He wielded the power of the entire New York crime syndicate and had the NYPD in his pocket. All she had was her wits. If she could draw other powerful people to her cause, she'd have a chance against Schultz. And if she did it right, she'd be able to humiliate him at the same time. A sudden idea came to her in a flash. She rushed over to her desk and started writing a letter to the Amsterdam News, a popular paper in Harlem. Two days later, Harlem residents opened the Amsterdam News to a photograph of St. Clair in a luxurious fur coat. Next to the photo was a letter that detailed how her community had been suffering under a corrupt police force. It was a bold message to Dutch Schultz. I'm not afraid of you. Come and get me. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins, a ParCast original. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Kingpins in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This is our second episode on activist and policy banker Stephanie St. Clair. Last week, we learned how St. Clair immigrated to New York City as a teen. During the 1920s, she operated a prominent policy bank in Harlem. But by the end of the decade, she had attracted the attention of the New York mob. The honeymoon was over. This week, we'll follow St. Clair as she single-handedly defends her policy bank from mob control. She'll use every weapon at her disposal, from the power of her pen, to her enforcer Bumpy Johnson, to her own two hands. By the summer of 1929, Dutch Schultz controlled nearly all the policy banks in Harlem. Just as Stephanie St. Clair had predicted, he was pulling the profits from those banks out of the neighborhood and funneling them to the mob. St. Clair's bank and the few other holdouts had to operate in the shadows or not at all. 31-year-old St. Clair didn't have a lot of options. 
Her top enforcer, Bumpy Johnson, had just been incarcerated for grand larceny. And though she continued to make graft payments to local police departments, Schultz's political connections in the mayor's office superseded any amount St. Clair could pay. Harassment from the police was escalating, and there was no way for St. Clair to fight back. Until she went public. St. Clair's letter in the Amsterdam News was published on August 21st, 1929. The Amsterdam News was the Harlem newspaper. Everyone in the neighborhood read it, and Stephanie St. Clair was about to become the centerfold. Though the entire community read her letter, it was actually meant for the eyes of one person, New York Mayor James J. Walker. She wrote about the police harassment her community had suffered, black men and women who were shouted at, chased down, and strip-searched in alleys or apartment hallways as their neighbors passed by. The police were searching for any signs of a numbers racket. Large amounts of change, a policy book, or betting receipts. Sometimes they found these items, and sometimes they didn't. Even if the search turned up no evidence, these unlucky citizens were still taken to the precinct. When they went before a judge, detectives often used false evidence to get a conviction. Racism ensured that their protest of innocence fell on deaf ears. The judge always trusted the word of a white police officer over a black defendant. Bail would be set at $1,000 or more, an astronomical sum for the average Harlem resident. St. Clair had neighbors and friends who spent months in jail simply because they were unlucky enough to turn down the wrong street. Cops entered private homes without warrants. Sometimes they even planted evidence. As for the policy banks, police would bust in and seize cash without making any arrests. God knows where that money ended up. St. Clair ended her letter with a plea directly to the mayor. She wrote, I beg you with tears in my eyes and a broken heart full of sorrow to please do something for these conditions which my people are going through in Harlem. In return, she promised to organize her neighbors to support Mayor Walker's re-election. St. Clair had painted a picture of a community living under the tyranny of a racist police state, and it was effective. This letter and its many follow-ups were a sensation, earning coverage in papers around the city, including the New York Times. Almost immediately, St. Clair got responses from the police commissioner and the mayor. On September 18, 1929, she published another letter in the Amsterdam News stating that everything in her previous letter was being investigated. She also advised everyone on their Fourth Amendment rights no police officer could enter their home without a warrant or search them on the street. She closed out with the promise, I am going to continue fighting until the members of my race are freed from these mistreatments. From Madame Stephanie St. Clair. Like all of her letters, a photograph of St. Clair herself was printed alongside it. In this one, she gazed confidently into the lens her head adorned in a chic turban, delicate earrings sparkling next to her face. The public letters were ingenious. On her own, she could never match Dutch Schultz's sway in City Hall. 
If she'd gone directly to the mayor with her complaints, she would have been turned away. But publicity meant pressure. But by being so public, she took a major risk. Before, she'd been just another policy banker, a minor annoyance for Dutch Schultz. Now, she was the face of his public humiliation, and she'd have to be taken out. Right after the letters hit the papers, St. Clair began to receive threatening phone calls. Throaty voices on the other end of the line imagined her death in colorful, violent fashions. But St. Clair didn't let them scare her. Instead, she took those threats to the people. In a letter dated October 2, 1929, she wrote, Enemies have telephoned almost every night and said they are going to give me a ride and bump me off. When they say such things over my private wire, I just laugh at them, because such things sound silly and simple to me. St. Clair was the one who'd get the last laugh. On October 16, 1929, she wrote another letter. Quote, I have the satisfaction of knowing that two of the officers who have been framing many members of the race have been arrested and are now under $2,000 bail each. Many more of these officers will be in the same predicament if they do not stop framing colored people. She'd managed to put two officers in jail. In return, she made good on her promise to Mayor Walker, publishing more letters in November encouraging everyone in Harlem to register and vote for Walker. But the victory would be short-lived. On December 30th, 1929, St. Clair left her apartment at 11 a.m. and headed to the bus stop. As she waited, she noticed a policeman she knew loitering nearby. She found that unsettling, but she kept her head up and waited for the bus. As soon as she boarded, the officer got on as well. She knew in her gut that this wasn't a coincidence. When she got off, she was sure the officer would follow her. But when she turned around, there was no one there. Perhaps it was nothing. St. Clair brushed it off and kept walking. She'd only gone a few steps when a pair of handcuffs slapped around her wrists. Coming up, St. Clair takes on the NYPD. Now, back to the story. Throughout 1929, 31-year-old Stephanie St. Clair used the power of the pen to fight police corruption. In the process, a few corrupt officers were jailed, but so was St. Clair. When officers cornered St. Clair on December 30th, she didn't resist. She noticed that one of the officers, Dizzy Roberts, had a bundle of small slips of paper in his hand. She had a pretty good idea what was going on. When she arrived at the police station, her hunch was right. She was being framed. That bundle of papers was presented to the court as policy receipts, evidence of St. Clair's involvement in a numbers racket. The so-called evidence was laughable. She never would have carried her own policy receipts. She had employees for that. Never mind the fact the evidence itself was fake. But it didn't matter. St. Clair's lawyer pushed for a jury trial, but the presiding judge blocked the motion. 
perhaps because any jury of St. Clair's peers would immediately see through the fabricated evidence. Instead, he set a bench trial date for January 6, 1930. He would be the one to determine the sentence. As soon as St. Clair got home on bail, she wrote another letter. Published on New Year's Day, 1930, St. Clair opened the letter with, Well, folks, I have been arrested. She pointed out the ridiculousness of the evidence, saying, Suppose I was banking. I would never be foolish enough to have on me at any time anything that would incriminate me. What would I be doing on the street with a bundle of slips in my hand or possession? She also included a copy of the complaint filed against her by the arresting officer. In it, she was quoted as saying, My God, you have me right. I have only got a small business now. If you let me go, I will give each of you $500 in one hour. She commented, Do you people think that I, Madame St. Clair, would make such a statement as credited to me in the copy of the complaint above? St. Clair's bravado never flagged throughout her court appearances. Witnesses stated that she had entered the building where she was arrested, not because it was her policy bank, but because she was attending a meeting for her charity, the French Legal Aid Society. But her defense fell on deaf ears. On March 14, 1930, St. Clair was convicted on racketeering charges. She was sentenced to a New York penitentiary called Blackwell Island. On the streets, it was called Welfare Island. It's unclear how much of St. Clair's arrest and trial were orchestrated by Dutch Schultz as payback for her meddling with his crooked cops. But it's safe to assume he was pleased to hear about the outcome. As long as St. Clair was in prison, she wouldn't be a problem. But when she was released, she still had plenty of fight left. She left prison on a Wednesday, December 3rd, 1930, and the following Monday, she was back in a courtroom, not as a defendant, but as a witness. While she was locked up, the Seabury Commission was created by the New York State Legislature to investigate corruption in the city's courts and police department. St. Clair's public complaints had contributed to the commission's formation, and fresh out of prison, she wasn't about to miss a chance to speak to them. St. Clair stood before the assembly and testified about how NYPD officers and sergeants had accepted her bribes for years. Apparently, she was willing to go down with this ship. She also told stories of harassment and even criminal activity by officers, including one time when they broke into her apartment and stole cash. When she reported it to lieutenants, they did nothing. A few days after her public testimony, St. Clair provided the commission with the names of judges and police officers who were on her payroll. A few days after that, there was a major shakedown in the NYPD. Over a dozen cops, including two of the officers involved in St. Clair's arrest, were suspended. But the biggest victory of the Seabury Commission was the revelation that many black and white working class people had been arrested under false pretenses. The only way to escape these phony charges was to pay off all the people involved. The policemen, the judges, the public defenders, even the bail bondsmen. If they couldn't pay, they were locked up. 
Everything St. Clair had published in the paper was absolutely correct. In just a few weeks after her release from prison, she had completely turned her luck around. Finally, she had the authorities on her side. But the real threat, Dutch Schultz, was still out there, and he was angrier than ever. In the summer of 1931, there was a knock at St. Clair's door. When she looked out the peephole, she saw a white man in a snazzy suit. She wasn't expecting company, certainly not a white man. So she shouted through the door, asking who he was. The man explained that he'd been sent by Dutch Schultz. Schultz wanted to resolve their conflict, and he was there to negotiate on his boss's behalf. St. Clair didn't trust Schultz. No way was the man here to cut a deal. More likely, he was here to kill her. She was home alone, and her enforcer, Bumpy Johnson, was still behind bars for grand larceny. She would have to protect herself. In a smooth motion, St. Clair opened the door, ushered Schultz's man into her apartment, then shoved him directly into her hall closet and locked it. Once he was safely contained, she dialed for backup. Less than an hour later, a limousine pulled up outside St. Clair's building. Four men exited in a precise military fashion, marched to the door, and pressed the elevator button for St. Clair's level. Those men were her bodyguards. We don't know exactly what happened next, but 20 minutes later, the four bodyguards exited the building. Dutch Schultz's man did not. This possible attempt on St. Clair's life was just one of many, but the intimidation only made her fight harder. Schultz's reign over the policy banks had been ruthless and cruel. He took the lion's share of the profits from any bankers who agreed to work under him. He cut out the role of runner entirely, forcing bettors to visit in person to place their wagers. The people lucky enough to keep their jobs were dealt a steep pay cut. Under Harlem owners, the accounting team took home 10% of the daily house take. Under Schultz, that pay dropped to 5%. Dutch pocketed the difference. In the month of May 1931 alone, Schultz made over $2 million thanks to Harlem. While the Harlem policy bankers had reinvested their profits in the community, Schultz sucked the money out, just as St. Clair predicted. She kept rallying the few policy bankers left in the neighborhood, and they kept up their work in the shadows. St. Clair knew the high wages she paid her employees kept them loyal to her. Well, that and her temper. Whenever a worker raised the idea of defecting to Schultz, St. Clair was known to ask, what kind of men would desert a lady in a fight? In 1932, Bumpy Johnson was released from prison and immediately returned to St. Clair's side. He accompanied her everywhere, even on her nights out to the jazz clubs and the symphony. This new level of intimacy did not go unnoticed. The Harlem rumor mill spun, but both St. Clair and Bumpy denied their relationship ever went beyond business. But no matter how close Bumpy got to St. Clair, he couldn't protect her from everyone. She was about to learn the hard way that she couldn't trust anyone, 
not even her own friends. In 1932, one of Dutch Schultz's henchmen, Max Romney, approached a woman named Catherine Odlum, who is thought to have been well acquainted with St. Clair. Romney offered Odlum a proposition. Dutch Schultz was willing to pay her $500 if she would lure St. Clair back to her apartment. There, one of Schultz's hitmen would be waiting to put a knife in St. Clair's back. Coming up, St. Clair faces a bitter betrayal. Now back to the story. For years, Stephanie St. Clair and Dutch Schultz battled over Harlem. Schultz, with the NYPD in his pocket, managed to win control. St. Clair responded by exposing police corruption and landing several officers in jail. And Schultz wasn't going to take that hit lying down. In 1932, Schultz offered one of St. Clair's own friends, Catherine Odlum, $500 to help him kill Madame Queen. After the offer, Odlum went to see St. Clair right away. But she wasn't there to act on Schultz's behalf. $500 wasn't enough to tempt her to kill her own friend. According to St. Clair, Odlum signed an affidavit certifying her story. St. Clair brought that affidavit to the police station, hoping it would be enough to arrest Schultz's henchmen. That didn't happen, but the cops did offer St. Clair their protection. If the police wouldn't help her, she'd turn back to her favorite familiar stage, the Amsterdam News. In September 1932, St. Clair's luxurious limousine pulled up to the curb alongside an Amsterdam News reporter. She was pleased to run into them. She had some things she needed printed. The newspaper reported that she promised in her excitable English that Schultz is going out of Harlem. If she had to put a picket at every one of his number stores from 125th to 155th streets, who does he think he is? She asked with a toss of her head. And then she answered with a snap of the finger. He's nobody. I'm going to show him something and he better get out of Harlem before I begin. St. Clair had been fighting against Schultz's police officers for years now. But this was the first time she named him in print. Even though Schultz was coming after St. Clair personally, she made sure to frame her fight as more than just a battle for her own life. It was a fight for her community's economy. She told the Amsterdam News that Schultz's policy banks are taking $10,000 a day out of Harlem. When the article failed to spark any police action, St. Clair took matters into her own hands. She went to several of Schultz's storefronts, no backup, no bodyguards, and began to destroy them. She smashed plate glass windows, sent piles of receipts flying, and screamed at the clerks. It was a powerful display. As greedy and ruthless as Schultz was, there was no way he could match St. Clair's passion and raw nerve. Around this time, St. Clair was quoted in Amsterdam News saying, I'm not afraid of Dutch Schultz or of any other man living. He'll never touch me. She was right. After tearing up several of Schultz's policy banks, 
she told the police where the locations were. She supplied more information over the coming months, and in March 1933, the cops finally had enough to act. Based on St. Clair's information, they raided Schultz's main clearinghouse, where revenues from all of his Harlem policy banks were collected daily. According to author Shirley Stewart, millions of betting slips were seized, totaling over $2 million in daily play. They also took all of the petty cash on hand, totaling over $2,000, worth nearly $40,000 today, and 14 of Schultz's employees were arrested. But St. Clair's victory was short-lived. On March 7, 1933, another black policy banker named Martin Harris was murdered in his apartment. St. Clair was friendly with Harris and viewed him as an ally. The Amsterdam News reported that the finger had been placed on Madame Stephanie St. Clair as the next victim. There had been plenty of threats on her life in the past, but after the very real murder of one of her colleagues, the possibility of death was more palpable than ever before. St. Clair began spending less time out in the neighborhood and kept Bumpy close at all times. She kept running her bank through associates, but didn't dare appear at headquarters herself. There are a few different versions of what occurred during this time, but it appears that because the danger had ramped up, Bumpy may have tried to negotiate with Schultz for St. Clair's life. Over the course of those negotiations, Schultz convinced him that he was in a no-win situation. Death was almost certain if he and St. Clair continued to fight. There was one other option. Schultz wanted Bumpy to take over enforcement in Harlem not just for the policy banks, but for all the criminal enterprises the mob syndicate was involved in. It would be a big promotion. For a time, Bumpy played both sides. He continued to protect St. Clair, once even hiding her in a coal bin to keep her safe from mob henchmen. But the longer it went on, the more he was convinced that Schultz was right. This war was not sustainable. He would have to switch to the winning side. The loss of Bumpy must have hit St. Clair hard. He was not only a source of physical protection, but his presence was a symbol to the community that the fight against the mob was still viable. Now that he'd defected, St. Clair was truly on her own. Despite Bumpy's new alliance, St. Clair remained on good terms with him. She had little choice if she wanted to keep living in Harlem. Some sources claim that she retired not long after Bumpy left. Others say that she agreed to Schultz's terms, ceding most of her bank's profits to him. In any case, Bumpy's new role with the syndicate signaled the end of the policy bank war in Harlem. They'd fought long and hard, and they'd lost. But at least now, there was peace. St. Clair may have had to concede the war, but she did get the last word. On October 23, 1935, Dutch Schultz was shot in the gut on the order of his own syndicate. It took him an entire day of anguish to succumb to his wounds. As he lay in a hospital bed, delirious in the last throes of death, 
a telegram arrived. It read, As ye sow, so shall ye reap. It was signed, Madam, Queen of Policy. Even though St. Clair was moving beyond policy banking, her life remained no less colorful or criminal. In June of 1935, the 37-year-old sat down in her apartment for a business meeting with a man named Sufi Abdul Hamid. St. Clair didn't go for the business venture, a neighborhood chicken restaurant, but she couldn't deny that Hamid intrigued her. The two appeared made for each other, literally. Both were known for their elaborate, colorful appearance. They also shared similar views on fighting for racial equality, loudly and without compromise. But as a wealthy woman, St. Clair was wary of the institution of marriage. Instead, in August 1936, St. Clair drew up her own contract for a formal relationship. Among other things, the contract stipulated that Hamid had to be entirely faithful to her. But it wasn't meant to be. It took St. Clair just over a year to realize Hamid had broken his contract. Around Thanksgiving of 1937, Hamid stayed out all night. Looking into it, St. Clair found out that he was keeping two other apartments and two other women. On January 18, 1938, St. Clair fired three shots at Hamid. None of them hit him directly, with the closest shot barely grazing his teeth. St. Clair's trial began on March 15, 1938. Although she had managed to generate some sympathy in the press with stories of Hamid's infidelity, it didn't carry over in court. She was sentenced to up to 10 years in the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility. It's unknown how many years she actually served. After her release, she mostly disappeared from the public record. On December 11, 1969, she passed away at the age of 71. She died owing money to several creditors, including a funeral home. Stephanie St. Clair lived an unbelievable, fearless life. She moved to a new country at only 13 and built her own business at 26. She stood up for justice in the face of corrupt law enforcement, a racist court system, and the violent New York mob. Incredibly, she single-handedly protected her policy bank from mob takeover for years and survived to tell the tale. In a time before a broad civil rights movement, St. Clair gave other black Americans practical steps to protect their rights. Not only was she a leader in her community, she was public and proud with her support. Stephanie St. Clair was a criminal, but she still published her face in the newspaper alongside cries for criminal justice reform. For that boldness, she deserves to be remembered. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Kingpins, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. 
To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of Kingpins was written by Hannah McIntosh, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.